Hi there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where two old friends get together and watch an episode of the Generation 1 Transformers cartoon in story order and then convene to talk about what they saw. We are lifelong fans of the show, so we talk about it, how we experienced it as children and how we experience it today as grown-ups. My name is Jersey Drozd. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist, and the other host is named... Co-host find. Look on Skype. <laughs> Oh, good one. <laughs> Telegraphing who we're going to meet today in our discussion of... Transformers the Movie, Part 3. This part is chapters three. 7 through 9 of the Blu-ray. Mm, so if, if you don't have the Blu-ray but bought it digitally, which I did both, actually. I bought mm. the Blu-ray and I bought it digitally. Because I, you know, it's like Hasbro, you can have my money twice for this movie that's brought me so much joy. <laughs> so where would that be? What part of the movie did we leave off at? Well, if you got a VHS or a DVD or digital file, you go about 44 minutes in, roughly, is mm. where we're going to start. Okay. All right. So, take it away, Hoover. Where do we go? Well, first, I have a couple corrections. In part one, I accidentally called this a PG-13 movie. Nope, it's just mm. PG, and I knew that, but got confused. And we might have said Instruments of Destruction was by Spectre General, but it's by NRG. And we have yet to have any fans actually us, but sometimes I don't catch my own errors until the episode is done, which is just one of the reasons why we're now every two weeks, so I don't have to rush through things and make mistakes. <laughs> well, also, you're being a good leader, and you're, you're taking part of the blame for the Spectre General drop, but I was the one who said that. <laughs> I said, I believe this is Instruments of Destruction by Spectre General, and you just went, uh-huh, and just kept going. So, yes, you're complicit in that you agreed with me, but I was the one who made the <laughs> error. Mea culpa, by my fault, by my own grievous fault. Okay, now we've washed our hands of that. We can continue talking about <laughs> Transformers the movie. Well, as we begin part three, the shuttle containing Magnus, Springer, RC, Blur, Perceptor, and Daniel flies through space, having fooled Galvatron that they had been destroyed. Did we have to let them detonate three quarters of the ship? Seeing as how they would have detonated four quarters, I think it was a good choice. Now, usually I'm all for wise-ass characters, but I find Springer pretty annoying. Yeah, there's something about his delivery that just has a little... It, he's too smarmy by half, right? Mm -hmm. I think it was a good choice. All right, stop it, you know, Blaine. <laughs> you know, you're starting to talk like a James Spader character in a mm. 1980s movie about high school, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> so I wonder if that's what was turning us off about him, because I've never warmed to Springer. Mm. Maybe, maybe a little bit more when we get into Five Faces of Darkness, but even then... There's something where he's just he's he's never not that way, right? Which right. one would say, well, that's the Sunbow thing you guys get so excited about. Prowl's always about you know tactics and military strategy. Springer's always about hmm 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 in his voice. Well, okay, well, guess what? I don't like that as a personality trait. <laughs> and sometimes they will do a character like this and then show like how you cut to the meat of his yeah. real personality or whatever. But there's Slingshot. never that kind of moment for for, for Springer. Yeah, you know, there's no one who can like, you know, there's no scene where RC confronts him and says, "Hey, why do you act like you know everything all the time?" And then he's like, "But, but, 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 uh, uh," you know, right. yeah, he we, never has that moment. 
Yeah, there's there's no counterpoint to it within him. Whereas with tracks and and slingshot, we get a little bit more. I know we just met Springer, everybody, and he's in a movie where we've met a lot of new characters. I know there's not that much room, but at mm-hmm. this point, he's rubbing us the wrong way. So, yeah. well, Magnus asks Perceptor to find them a place to set down for repairs, which sets Perceptor off on a convoluted answer, which he truncates down upon seeing Magnus's bored finger tapping reaction. Turns out there's a planet of junk nearby, which will meet their needs, so off they go. I'm going to take these opportunities to underline when Ultra Magnus is acting like a not great leader. <laughs> and, it, 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 and this is this is less... I, you and I have talked about Ultra Magnus for literally over mm. a quarter century. <laughs> it, was, it felt like it was one of the first things that I brought up to you like I was like the most original Transformers fan to deduce (laughs) that Magnus was such a bad leader when we first started talking on the phone it's like how about that Ultra Magnus huh couple Decepticons (laughs) attack and he decides to open up the Matrix yeah yeah we you were totally doing like a Jerry Seinfeld sort of like (laughs) stand-up routine about Ultra Magnus like who is this leader Mm -hmm. but I, I do think upon watching it carefully this is all very methodically laid out by Flint Dilly. Now, I've never spoken with Flint Dilly, and I've listened to a few interviews with him about this movie, and I listened to the DVD commentary, so I've gotten a few of his thoughts on this movie. And we've heard his audiobook, which is great. It's Yes, it's very, very good. The Games Master. My life in the 80s geek culture trenches with G.I. Joe, Dungeons & Dragons, and the Transformers. By Flint Dilly. But... I feel like this is, he's purposefully placing these things to show how he is not the right person to be leading the Autobots. And him doing that pose where he's got his head in his hands and he's tapping his fingers like, oh my God, will you just get over it? Tell me what you're going to tell me. Stop Mm -hmm. dithering and stop blathering about all of the different options that we have. Just tell me, right? See, here's a very similar scenario in another science fiction property. Star Trek mm. Next Generation. Mm. At the very beginning of that series, every time Picard asks Data something, Data mm. will go on and on and say like, oh, it's point seven four three eight nine six eight four three meters, and and Picard gets bored, but he he politely shushes him. You know, he's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. that yeah. will do, Data. You know, yes, yes. That's how a leader should react. You know, he be polite. Yeah understand that there's no time for this lollygagging of detail but Mm -hmm. don't just be rude and (laughs) put your head in your hands and just tap your fingers yeah yeah it's 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 very disrespectful the way he reacts to it Mm -hmm. and even Springer who we just made fun of for being a smarmy you know kind of d-bag just like looks over his shoulder like geez are you you done yet you know but (laughs) but magnus is being out of line and like we've also joked about optimus in towards the end of season two is like perceptor just do it you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes but he didn't like elaborately pantomime how he was dying of boredom while perceptors talking i can't even imagine prime doing that i picture (laughs) that in my mind it's like this this does not compute Right. So it's a good, it's a cute little joke. It's a cute little moment to show like, oh, nerdy people use big words, whatever. That feels very dated. But I think I want to give Flint Dilly credit for this. This is something I tell my students all the time. It's like, I'm going to notice something and I want you to take credit for it, whether you meant to do it or not, is 
This is, he's laying a case for us to say, nope, he's not the right person. The, the right person is coming. This is mm-hmm. not the right person for it. And I know we joked about it for 25 years, but as I'm watching it again carefully, I'm like, no, he's, that was the point. We were picking up on something as a joke, but that was the point that he's making. So hang on to everything Ultra Magnus says. I think it's very thoughtfully executed how inappropriate it is that he's the leader. He himself rejected it. But Optimus said, I wasn't the right person either, but the right person will come, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so off to the planet of junk, which I can't <laughs> wait to get to. But before we get to the planet of junk, we got to go someplace else. So then we cut away as nothing's going to stand in our way by Spectre General starts up. And we see an alien landscape with a body of water or something, some kind of liquid. It's very yellowish. <laughs> we cut to under the sea to find robotic fish with large, sharp teeth. And we see them swallowing some smaller fish without those sharp teeth. As we hear a familiar voice under the water. Turns out it's Hot Rod entangled in some robotic seaweed or underwater vines, yelling for the rest of the crew from their crashed ship. Yeah, I love that. He's like, he says, Grimlock, Slag, anybody. It's like, after you get to Slag, it's like, okay, I don't even know the names of the rest of the dead of us. Just, <laughs> you know, it's like, I know there's Grimlock. I know there's that guy named Slag. He's kind of ticked off all the time. And then there was that big one. And there was the flying one. I don't even know. Just somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Hot Rod retracts his left hand, exchanging it for a circular saw, allowing him to free himself from the vines and fend off the teethy robotic fish. It's then he hears another voice calling for help. It's Cup. Swimming through the water, Hot Rod transforms, proving his car mode still functions underwater, and zooms off towards the voice of his fellow Autobot. So, we're probably going to talk about this a lot when we wrap up the movie. But I love all of these really cool robotic landscapes. So he's underwater, but when you get underwater, it's all gold in color, but it's all mechanical panels. And, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not like really angular or square. It still looks very organic. And and, and again, it's kind of giving me this vibe of like a 1970s sci-fi paperback book cover Mm. in the, in the color palette and in the way it's rendered with like these orbs with giant spikes coming out of them some odd mushroom shapes in the background some vines and tendrils but they're all mechanical looking and then even on the surface of this planet you said it was an alien landscape but it was like it was like metal that was moving like plants i don't mean it was actually moving on screen i mean like the direction the metal moves if you follow its contour are these angular yet plant-like directions it doesn't look like it was planned or built it looks like metal that is growing if that makes sense Mm. And and I'm I'm going to draw some distinctions on the, these two worlds that the Autobots are all headed to, like Ultra Magnus and Perceptor, and that, that gang's going to the planet of junk. Hot Rod and Cup landed on this other weird, like sort of underwater and semi-organic yet metallic planet. And I love this idea of we're charting new territories in the Transformers movie. We're showing more of the galaxy, which is what we began to do in season two. But these two places where they go, some very important transformations, pardon the expression, I mean character growth, are going to happen here, right? And this is something that happens in a lot of these kinds of stories, these like these Jungian sort of mythological kinds of stories that we talked about this in the key to Vector Sigma parts one and two. Go find Vector Sigma. What is it? It's this mysterious thing. It's this ancient computer that gives life, but it's deep in the bowels of Cybertron. You have to go down into the depths and face threshold guardians, things like that. I feel like Flint Dilly's following that kind of motif of like, okay, well, we got to go have the characters transform. 
Im- Im- evolve as people, well, we have to send them to a place where they are unfamiliar, where they're out of their element, right? And uh-huh. we're going to see how we've already seen it just now with, with Hot Rod. He's trapped in vines. What do I do? I adapt. I'm going to make a saw out of my hand, cut the things. Now I'm going to transform to carbon and drive around at the bottom of the water. What? You can do that? Yeah, I can. I'm Hot Rod. I adapt to things. <laughs> we'll see if Ultra Magnus adapts to things. Right. <laughs> anyway, but it's worth looking at this landscape. It looks really, really cool. Well, Hot Rod finds Cup in the grip of a huge robotic squid, a good four or five times his size, and soon finds himself in battle with it. Using his wrist cannons and the circular saw, Hot Rod puts up a great fight and manages to scare the beast off by shooting it in the eye. It leaves, but not before shooting a black ink into the water just as its fleshy counterpart would, slowing up Hot Rod's attempt at locating Cup. But find him he does, and if all the previous death and violence wasn't enough, he finds Cup minus an arm and a leg. Cup pleads for Hot Rod to fix him, and he finds the severed limbs abandoned on the robotic ocean floor, and takes them and the rest of Cup up to the surface to begin repairs. So there's two things about this scene that I love, and I just started hinting at it a little bit, is that, one, we're getting more about how Hot Rod is a capable, creative improviser this is the kind of person who hmm they might make a good leader <laughs> they can they can roll with things and improvise solutions right he's he's in the grip of the robotic squid he's like i'll shoot it here i'll shoot it here i'm gonna use my saw here none of that's working okay let's go for the eye and then he sends it packing right also there's this idea i i imagine flint dilly was at least intuiting this is like in these kinds of stories where you meet like a, a monster in the depths you have to first encounter the person who met the monster, and there's always something kind of wrong with them. Like they're damaged in some way, they're missing a leg, or they, they're missing an eye. But they, in some way, or they, they're like kind of mentally unhinged. But in some way, that they're there to show you, oh, you don't want to mess with this monster kid. Look what it did to me. Kind of character, mm-hmm. the character who yeah. met the monster. Yeah, and they're kind of doing that here a little bit, but they're doing it while they reveal the monster, and the monster runs away, and Cup's destroyed by it. Right, Cup, the more experienced Autobot couldn't overcome this thing hot rod the creative adapting improviser can right i love that but then this is more of a technical thing this scene has always confused me ever since i was a kid is that when we see coupling face down he's kind of in the ground like it's Mm -hmm. like the ground is interacting with him as if it were sand but the way it's painted is it looks like metal panels so does Hoover have a Hoover rationalization to square the circle? Because as we see, <laughs> as we see Hot Rod picking up Cup's parts, they're half buried in the ground. But when you see the ground, it looks like metal panels. How does this ground work? That is a very good question. I mean, the only thing it's really hitting home is that this is an alien world. I mean, mm. this movie keeps throwing us different new breeds of robot that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. When now we're seeing robotic teethy fish, robotic squid. So mm-hmm. this this is an alien world. They're giving us things that look familiar, like, oh, we recognize that that's a fish, but it's robotic. We recognize mm-hmm. that that's a squid, but it's robotic. <laughs> I guess we're supposed to recognize that this is sand, but it's robotic. You know, what does robotic that mean? Robotic sand. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, and, you know, it's like, I, I want to dig into this in more detail after we finish talking about the whole movie, but it does feel like it's almost making a case that, you know what? The Transformers are more at home in the universe than they are on Earth. Right? Mm-hmm. Humans and flesh creatures are the anomaly. 
and maybe life expresses itself more in a mechanical way in the rest of the cosmos because gosh it seems like we're encountering a lot of robot planets in this movie yeah we certainly are and we did not do that in season two whenever we saw like alien races it was like Mm -hmm. lord gaikany and Slezardo and <laughs> yeah and then the planet the sea spray went to and then titan mm -hmm. you know it's like okay well now or maybe you know this is just like a more autobot populated part of the galaxy but yeah yeah this is this is the cybertron neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we cut back to space where magnus's shuttle arrives at the planet of junk where it crash lands, throwing everyone from their seats. But thankfully, everyone survives and wants to get started on repairs. Oh my gosh, Hoover, the planet of junk. Can you describe this planet? It looks well, so... calling it a planet is... Mm, I, I want to say inaccurate, but it's like an arc shape. Uh -huh. It's not spherical. It's just like... It's like it's like a it's like a crescent moon, but mm -hmm. pointed downward, and it's, it's got it, things growing up on the top and things growing down on the bottom. Yeah, and so it's almost as if like you just like peeled a little bit of the rind off of a planet and just put it in deep space, right? Mm -hmm. But but it looks like it's got mold and right. It's all rusty, right? It's like mm -hmm. it's it's like the mechanical equivalent of like a compost pile in deep space, right? Yeah. Like all the different metallic parts of ships that got shot and blasted and everything have all coalesced to this region of space yeah. where they all somehow maybe through some sort of space magnetization or something, <laughs> they all well, get stuck together. Well, I mean, that's how gravity works, right? Is like that that's how like the planets in our solar system were formed was just through it was like little random objects bumping into each other until they accrued, right? And that's what partially makes this planet as we see it there impossible because gravity itself pulls everything towards the center. So mm -hmm. it would form more of an orb shape. It wouldn't form this elongated shape, but I love the impossibility of it because again, it points toward it's first of all, it's imaginative. It's cool and unexpected. It's like nothing we've ever seen before. Like we've talked about this about the the Voltron Netflix series, mm -hmm. how there were planets with like impossible formations on them, and that made things feel more elevated, fantastical, dreamlike. And I want to hang on to this idea of dreamlike because we're going to places where characters are going to be tested, and they are going to either adapt or not. They're going to go through trials. This is the kind of thing that you get in like the hero arc kind of thing. And when you go through trials, you need to go to places that are outside of your experience. You have to go to unfamiliar territories. And this does not look familiar, right? Mm -mm. We don't recognize it as a planet. What is this place? Already we're activated into wondering and imagining. But another thing that I also love, and as I still stored it, still stored it. I'm sorry I keep using that term, everybody. I'm old. But <laughs> there are protrusions jetting up on the top and their protrusions coming out of the bottom. The top is in light and the bottom is in shadow. Now, they never talk about this, as far as mm -hmm. I know, in the series. Yeah. I love the implied idea of an upper world and an underworld on the planet of junk. And it makes me grieve for the fact that we didn't get more stories that took place on the planet of junk. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, same here. Well, Daniel, as always, wants to help too, so RC presents him with one of Spike's exosuits. Now Daniel is ecstatic to wear an exosuit like his dad, 
as Springer and R.C. help him get the hang of it. But soon Ultra Buzzkill comes in, <laughs> reminding them that there's work to do. And thank goodness they actually have Ultra Magnus smile in the yeah. scene when, yeah. he, when he tells them that. Because if he hadn't smiled, it just would have been like, okay, we get it. He's a grump. He yeah. wants everyone to work all the time. You know, we got that sort of Ultra Magnus in Transformers Prime, I feel. Yeah, yeah. That Transformers really... Prime was the ultimate buzzkill. <laughs> and then he was like, how come nobody likes me? Yeah, they actually did a scene where like he's like bossing everybody around, and then Optimus comes home and he's like, Oh, Optimus is here, and they all run up to Optimus all happy. <laughs> and then Ultra Magnus is standing by himself looking sad. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a caricature of this Ultra Magnus. But mm-hmm. I like that idea of like the Ultra Magnus is the character who's not fit to lead. And I feel like they right. expressed that, they explored that in a lot of different versions of the Transformers series, even in the 2001 R.I.D. series. They explored that idea. Mm-hmm. So this is neat. It, it's a pattern that I'd never fully detected or articulated until we started doing this. So I'm grateful for this project for that reason alone. I feel like I finally understand how his character operates in the mythology. Well, they step outside the ship and survey the landscape. And it is literally a planet of junk with piles of it as far as the eye can see. And the Autobots begin digging for repair parts. But then we, the viewers, see numerous rust palette colored robots rise out of the junk just out of sight of the Autobots, and they sound very strange. Scott V. No, welcome, Wagonello Stranger, with that good coffee flavor for you. <coughs> Offer expires while you wait. Operators are standing by. We close in on the face of one robot who has a clear mustache and goatee. Now let's pause here for a side note. The Transformers toys of season 1 and 2 were pre-existing toys that were complete before their animation models ever came into existence. But the new characters in this movie in season 3, they went vice versa. Floro Derry designed them on paper initially, and they took these extensive designs and figured out how to make toys from them. That's a large part of why the toy line gets a whole new aesthetic in addition to there being 20 years worth of improvements in story. Previously, we had a whole lot of altering of features to make the toys more animation friendly, and just plain to make them look more friendly in general. Compare Brawn, Huffer, Windcharger, or Bumblebee's toy faces to their animation faces, and you can see two very different types of design. But now they were being created with animation always in mind. And so you get very unusual design choices that we'd never seen before. This robot has a mustache hanging off of his face. And Scourge seems to have a similar beard and mustache thing going on. Is this another sign of the brand aging up? You add death, you add heavy metal, and you add facial hair? (laughs) These are just some interesting things to think about. (laughs) <laughs> I'll again point you at the Gravity Falls cartoon. There's a whole episode where Dipper, the main character, wants to be more manly, and he finds this mythical species of minotaurs who practice manliness. And part <laughs> of it is about like getting body hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, we cut back to Cup and Hot Rod, and the young punk has managed to put Cup back together. A pretty amazing achievement to do without any supplies around. Uh huh. Improvisation. Cup takes a minute to test all of his joints and comes to a conclusion. 
Of all the second glitch diode blowing dimwittery, you left a piece out. No way, you're just a little stiff. Anyway, all things considered, you did an amazing job, lad. Amazing. Really? Yeah, you even got rid of a nasty bar on my rotator. Now let's find a Dinobots and get off this twisted planet. So, I I don't know about you, but I am a big fan of the curmudgeonly and archaic-sounding cussing that Cup mm-hmm. does. And it totally makes you think of, like, oh, I wonder if Flint Dilly was writing, like, a William Demarest type of character in this. And, like, adding a character like that to a sleek, futuristic science fiction story, mm. I think is genius. Like, imagine a William Demarest character on the bridge of the, you know, 1960s Enterprise, right? Like, like doing stuff like that, it would seem so out of place. It would seem so almost anachronistic. But in this context, it totally works. We recognize that character trope from like 1940s movies, but now we see him as this future vehicle. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I wish we got, we get a little bit more of it in season three, but I don't feel like we get a lot of his, his funny, slangy cussing yeah. in future stories. Well, the pair transform and they drive off. And after a bit, they retransform in front of another body of water where a dozen or more gray, green, and purple robots emerge. They're taken aback by these creatures, but Cup has a plan. Don't act hostile. I'll use the universal greeting. Universal greeting? Watch. I'll have an idiot out of my hand. Ba weep grana weep nittybong. Ba weep grana weep nittybong. See, the universal greeting works every time. Not without making any sudden moves. Offer them an energy on goodie. This is getting expensive. Don't worry, they'll reciprocate. I thought they were supposed to reciprocate. No more. Now, I was going to make a comment about how Cup essentially has a box of candy on his person. <laughs> like an old person having a bag of Werther's Originals. <laughs> but when Hot Rod pulled out one as well, that sort of blew my theory until I realized that Hot Rod is a young person. So, mm-hmm. of course, he would be into carrying candy around. You have the resident teenager and the resident old person. And both of those stereotypes love candy, so it fits nicely. I like the idea of Cuff has Werther's Originals, but like Hot Rod has Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New Extremely Sour. <laughs> It'll destroy your face. Yeah, what was what were those taffies that were really popular in the 90s that made your head explode or like it blew oh. up to a giant piece of fruit? <laughs> yeah, I can, I can picture the, the art on that package, but I can't think of the name. It was like, yes, the most extreme candy you've ever had. It will distort your body. (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) But what I also love about this particular scene with the university, and I I did, again, this is a thing I hadn't really thought about until I sat down and watched it carefully and, like, really trying to piece out, like, what are they trying to say in this story? Is, I don't know about you, but I felt like there were certain courtesies that I watched adults do when I was really young. I'm talking, like, five or six I didn't fully understand. They felt kind of arbitrary to me. Like, I remember learning to shake hands with grownups. Like, oh, this is what you do when you meet a grown-up. You shake hands. I'm like, but but why? What is <laughs> what, what purpose does this serve? I, we, we move our hands up and down. I mean, maybe I was, like, a little bit, like, part Vulcan when I was a kid, but I, I questioned it. Like, why are we doing this? And, like, I don't know. It's just something we do, you know? And so I love this idea of, like, 
cartoonizing it by having cup. Yes, this is the thing we grown-ups do. We older people, we say ba weep gra da weep nitty bog to each other. And then Hot Rod's like, what? What are you doing? And then, then they respond. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, ba weep gra da. Okay, I guess it's the thing we do. <laughs> so it perfectly mirrors that for me, like as a kid, like learning that these are the behaviors that adults do, and nobody can adequately explain to me the purpose behind it outside of it's a thing you do. And I love that Cup doesn't explain it either. <sighs> So then these spiky creatures get a little rambunctious and they want more energon. One of them transforms into a kind of alligatory type creature, and the others follow suit, pouncing on the pair of Autobots. But just then, an orange robot shows up on screen. He transforms to a very bulbous car form and speeds off. We see Cup and Hot Rod being led off by this group of alligatorish robots into a tall building. The orange car sees where they're going, but does not follow. So this is another spot to pause the playback and look at the scene. Like as we look at the top of the place that Cup and Hot Rod are being taken into and really drink in the differences in the two locations, these two exotic and strange places that our heroes have gone to for their, their challenges. And so whereas Ultra Magnus and Perceptor and his team on this brittle, rust-covered, sort of almost post-apocalyptic landscape, Hot Rod and Cup are in like this sleek, smooth, aquatic-looking place, right? It has like, it very much, it feels very, again, organic yet metallic at the same time. And I've never really sat down and appreciated how much Floro Dairy did in these concept designs. Like you look at that, this palace that they're being taken into, it's bizarre looking. It really mm. looks like the stuff of nightmares. And as they're being led in, we see that Cup and Hot Rod have a glowing ring around them, serving as handcuffs, keeping their arms at their sides. And as they're going down this hallway, Cup says something about, like, this reminds me of another experience I had as a younger robot. And Hot Rod's like, oh, every place reminds you of someplace else. It's like, experience, lad. You should learn to appreciate it. But as I was watching that, it occurred to me that, oh, this is a mentor-mentee relationship that they're setting up with Hot Rod and Cup, right? The older character who advises the younger character. It's in the tech spec. It, it says that that's what Cup's function, or one of the functions he performs is to be an advisor to Hot Rod, later on somebody else. But what I love about it, and what I love that Flint Dilly did here, is it's not preordained. It mm -hmm. is an accident of history that these two wound up on the same ship and on this adventure. Mm -hmm. Cup did not show up in Hot Rod's backyard saying, you must learn the ways of the Force if you're going to come with me to Alderaan, right? right? There was no, you're a wizard, Harry. None of that is there. It is incidental, but it's happening. It's emerging. The mentor-mentee relationship is emerging as a natural process of this adventure that they're on. That's one of the first things that's happening as an adaptation to being in an unusual environment. And I love it. I love that it breaks <laughs> the expectation, Right. It's, it's following the beats of the traditional hero journey, but he's fighting his own way to do it. Bravo, Flint Dilly. Bravo. <laughs> well, they're being led into a giant round room with a huge hole in the floor, a sort of pool with golden liquid at the bottom. About five other robotic creatures are stationed around the room. As the Autobots are led into this chamber, Cup turns his attention to what's going on with the others in the room. We first see a very strange creature with a large head and three green tentacles on each side. Jersey, why don't you tell us more about the look of this robot? 
Let's hang on to that language that Hoover used there, everybody. He has a large head. It's it's distorted, right? It almost looks like the H.R. Geiger aliens, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. this elongated back of the skull and then this little mean-spirited robotic face in the end. And then it's got a torso like you'd expect on a humanoid creature, but that's where the similarities end because mm-hmm. it has, instead of two appendages coming off the shoulders, it's got on each side three squid-like tentacles already implying some kind of like Lovecraftian thing. When you say tentacles, everybody thinks Lovecraft, right? And at the bottom, instead of legs, there's a, a, a blue cone with yellow spots on it, and then an energy burst coming out of the bottom of the cone producing a, a beam that pushes on the floor. So it's propelling itself. It's, it's, it's holding itself up and, and straight with a beam of energy. So we've got something that's like part organic, part metallic. It's got some kind of unusual mode of transportation everything about it feels monstrous implacable cruel almost conceptual and what i also think is interesting is that the creatures who are bringing cup and hot rod in they have a humanoid mode they look kind of like people they they, they look different they look brutish but Mm -hmm. they have two arms two legs and a head as we look at the scene and we contemplate this character standing up there with the tentacle arms there's two guards flanking them they look different than the weird alligator creatures but they have two arms two legs and a head and so as you go up the hierarchy they get less human which i Mm. think is interesting was a cool design choice we get more monstrous more abstract more again like archetypal and dreamlike as we get up the hierarchy because we're not done meeting these aliens this one that we've met so far is a weird looking dude it's gonna get weirder everybody And his tentacles, they seem to be completely organic. They're kind of a dark green, mm-hmm. and they don't imply any sort of metal. No, no. And there's like there's like little suckers on them, and mm-hmm. there's little sort of leaf-like appendages on the very ends of the tentacles. And there's a metal band around each one at the shoulder. But these things are somehow both, or at least this particular one, is somehow both organic and metallic. Mm-hmm. So... It, it feels like almost like an unholy fusion, right? This is the mm-hmm. thing I talk about in my comics classes. Is we talk about dual nature characters, characters who, like, there's characters like the Hulk, dual nature. I am a monster and I'm a man. I could change between both. But then you get dual nature characters like Martian Manhunter, where he is a stranger in a strange land kind of thing, and he can pass for everybody else, but he doesn't belong there. You got Spock, right? Half Vulcan, half human kind of thing. But then you can also have dual nature characters that are more like explicitly monstrous. You're merging things together to make them feel more monstrous. And that's how this character feels. But he doesn't sound monstrous. Well, he sounds he sounds wicked, but he doesn't sound like a monster in the sense of a force of nature that can't be reckoned with. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something cruel about this character. And this tentacled being turns to the robot behind him and asks. Has the Imperial Magistrate reached a verdict? We then see the other robot seemingly in a judge's seat atop a higher platform. This robot looks like an egg with five different faces. The body spins around, bringing another face to the forefront. And Jersey, can your artistic eye better explain this design <laughs> for our listeners? So, I mean, we could go into like the specific details about like what the different faces look like, because it is five unique faces almost as if they're representing five different personalities. And I immediately think of ceremonial masks, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you read books like The Hero with a Thousand Faces, yes, I'm invoking the name of Campbell again, but he wrote some neat stuff. And, you know, like ceremonial masks are these these bigger-than-life personas put on for certain ceremonies. Like there's rites of passage ceremonies where the boys of the village are brought around like this, this ceremonial campfire with their mothers, and then these people, these men with these masks come out and drag the boys away. Mom can't help you anymore. You're entering the world of manhood. And when you enter the world of manhood, I'm talking in a, like a, a, a symbolic sort of mythological sense, adulthood, let's say that. You have to contend with forces that are bigger than us. And it's represented by these implacable faces that don't move, right? And they're all designed different ways. And I love that idea of like that, that masks representing these sort of fundamental forces of nature. And I immediately think of that when I see these five faces on this egg-shaped thing. So when you say five faces on an egg, it could easily translate in your head to something that sounds really silly. Mm -hmm. This doesn't feel silly to me. These feel like they're coming from deep, dark places, these faces. They all have faces of disgust, cruelty, wickedness, nastiness. But they also have those blank eyes. There's no pupils right? Mm-hmm. They're looking at you, but they're looking through you kind of thing. And the egg shape is, it's like an inverted egg. Take the narrow part and point it down. And there's different panels of metal and antennae coming out of the top of the egg shape. So this is not just a simple orb. It's made of pieces. And at the bottom are more like little oval-like shapes colored yellow. And again, out of those oval shapes are these longer metallic tentacles, which are more like pasta. They're not, they don't feel as robust and as muscular as the tentacles on the first character that we met. They feel more fragile, and somehow that makes this thing feel more emaciated and sickly in a way, while it still feels implacable and powerful and coming from some kind of deep mythical place. And it propels itself, too, with a beam of energy coming out of the bottom. And then a final thing I would say is a, is a, a general sense that I get from this design by the way, I was not a huge fan of these characters as characters when I first met them as a young person. I was like, they're interesting, but man, the series would have done better without them. Now I am in love with them because they also <clears throat> kind of give me that half nightmarish vibe of like the art in children's books from the turn of the eight. 1800s to the 1900s like like through the looking glass wizard of oz like when you see that kind of distorted funhouse mirror style of illustration like when you look at the mad hatter or you look at some of the characters from oz and like how strangely they're drawn i feel like this is borrowing from that kind of aesthetic it's not the same it looks very different but it has that sort of in the context of a dream, this feels like it would fit perfectly. But when you take that aesthetic and put it in the real world, it becomes monstrous and, and, and nightmarish. And that's what this creature feels like to me, at least. I, I, I think I was describing it more conceptually than, than actually accurately. But for the purposes of an accurate description, there are five faces that rotate around the body of this egg. And they all have a different color scheme. There's an orange one, a red one, a, a bluish one, and a green one. And the green one in particular is the one that turns and speaks next. And it has a very skull-like face, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, the exchange continues as we see a robot standing precariously on a plank above this golden pool. I have guilty or innocent. Innocent. Feed him to the shark guns. We see another different robot design still with the unifying gray-green-purple color scheme pull a lever and the plank drops, sending the robot falling into the liquid below, 
where numerous of the aforementioned Sharktacons await. They pounce on the hapless victim as the five-faced judge laughs, and all five of his faces take the time to laugh as they rotate to the front. Oh, that's so creepy. It's so <laughs> creepy when they do that. Th what a great introduction for these characters, by the way. Oh. Hot Rod and Cup are shoved into a room with steel bars around it and junk strewn about the floor. Junk that looks like robot body parts. Mm -hmm. Hot Rod wonders exactly what this place is, and he's surprised when a voice answers from beyond the cell bars. The world of the savage Sharktacons and their cruel masters, the Quintessons. I am Granix. My planet was destroyed by Unicron. Aha! This seems to be one of the guys from the robotic planet in the open and maybe one of the very few of them who actually escaped Unicron. Well, Hot Rod wants to know more about this. Unicron? Who's Unicron? A planet that devours everything in its path. So that's the monster's name. Aha, so now they know what the strange creature was that devoured the moons of Cybertron. But just then, more of these armed guards rush in and grab Kranix. He tries to protest, saying he's the last survivor of Lithone. So now we have a name to put to that devoured planet. Hot Rod tries to protest Kranix is being taken, but as he grabs the cell bars, an electric shock is sent into him. The six-tentacled bailiff of sorts tells Hot Rod that they shall receive their sentence, but first we see that Kranix is led to face his judgment. He's put on the plank above the Sharktacon pit as the next court case begins session. Has the Imperial Magistrate reached a verdict? I have. Guilty or innocent? Then Kranich speaks up. Spare me this mockery of justice! I repeat, guilty or innocent? Innocent. Again, the plank lowers and Krennix falls into the pool below. And this happens when the judge declares the defendant innocent. Who can imagine what happens if they're guilty? The Sharktacons pounce on Krennix as Cup and Hot Rod grimly watch what is likely to happen to them next. And we fade to black. Yeah, that's an important thing too, is that the judge says innocent every time. And this also gives kind of like a Mad Hatter kind of vibe to this, like the tea party in Alice in Wonderland is like this. Mm -hmm. We're on a planet of lunatics. We're on a planet of yeah. mad people, right? Where they're playing a game, a deadly game, but it's a game to them. And, the, and we have to contend. How do you contend with that, right? What do you do when the enemy you're facing can't be reasoned with? Like a hurricane is coming and you got like the, like I've said this a hundred times, you got the rhetoric of an Abraham Lincoln, right? The hurricane doesn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes these kinds of villains really interesting in there. That's that's an aspect that makes them particularly interesting, I should say. And it also shows how our heroes are now completely out of their depth. Right. They're capable mm -hmm. warriors. They've fought a lot of things and they've won. Hot Rod is a brilliant improviser who can fight off giant sea monsters and repair a friend with no equipment. <laughs> <laughs> right. But now what do you do when you're in the grip of a lunatic who's going to just play this deadly game with you? So this is dark. This mm -hmm. is extremely dark. And I feel like it's it's diving into like this this wonderful, the, the, the wonderful darkness of dream that I get really excited about in this kind of storytelling. So, yes, it fades to black. And where do we go next? 
Well, as we come up, we see Swoop flying through the air, so we're finally checking in on the Dinobots. He hovers above a very silver metallic city, presumably this same planet that Cup and Hot Rod are stranded on. As Swoop descends, he joins the other three Dinobots. Remember, Snarl was just seen once on Earth and never got on board the ship. <laughs> who are walking through a very empty area. And now we get to see the Dinobots in their new role as full-on comedic foils. Me, Swoop, no see nothing! Me, Grimlock, positive, Hot Rod, and Cop close! Me, Slag, say you full of Viridium Baloney! <laughs> Grimlock say you full of cesium salami! Grimlock and Slag almost start fighting, but they're surprised by a voice from behind them. Who say that? It's that orange robot we saw earlier spying on Cup and Hot Rod being taken away by the alligator robots. He runs up Sludge's tail and onto his dino head. Grimlock fool! Pitcher you not? No fool you not! <laughs> Me Grimlock no like you! <laughs> Grimlock's not taking this insult lightly. He swats this orange annoyance right off of Sludge's head, right to the ground. But the little guy pulls out a slingshot and fires a glowing red rock at Grimlock, hitting him square in the nose. <laughs> My boy hit my nose. We say find friends today. Me Grimlock say we on our way. So this little orange boy, as Grimlock calls him, is Wheelie. It's been 20 years. Bumblebee has probably grown up a bit, so he can't be the cute one anymore. <laughs> we need a new cute character for all the young fans to glom onto. And yes, here he all is. the... All the, all the six-year-olds who are in the audience who made it this far to the movie. Right. <laughs> who somehow survived... <laughs> somehow survived watching all of this death and destruction. <laughs> Finally, there's something for them. <laughs> We're like an hour into the film. Yeah. Oh. And who better to voice this cute new character than the voice of Rumble, Frank Welker? finding yet another way to stick around as all his previous characters get killed off or given new voice boxes by Unicron. Yeah, his, his performance... I was surprised when I was a kid to find out this was Frank Welker. You know, cause it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's in the credits then. I was like, really? That was him? But as I listen to it now, I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of like a sweeter, more earnest version of his Mr. McJess Pitlick voice from the Super Friends cartoon. I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. that performance. Yeah. Okay, so two things. One is Sunbow animation and storytelling is so good in that it can go into really scary places like we just went and then they they make it safe again for us like okay mm -hmm. we know we just put some really upsetting stuff in front of you now we're gonna move look over here here's the here's the dinobots they're being really cute and funny and after yep. all we know they're on their way to help the hero so don't get too scared right it I, i'm not saying this is a way to criticize them for quote-unquote dumbing it down or quote-unquote making it too safe for children or somehow making an excuse for ultraviolence. Well, I feel like this, these stories really do. And this movie is a good example of this is like really borrowing language from my friend, Dan Mishkin acting as dress rehearsal for adulthood by saying like, you're going to encounter mm. some really upsetting, scary things. You're going to meet with unusual environments that are going to ask you to adapt, but don't forget that you're surrounded by friends 
and that life has its funny moments too. And let's not get too serious about it. Let's let's make this environment accept all the possibilities of all that darkness, but all that joy too, right? This is something, if I may make an advertisement for myself, that I'm working on with my new book, Baron Von Baron, The Case of the Two-Faced Statue. I'm really trying to borrow from that Sunbow approach of let's go into some really upsetting stuff, some really painful stuff, but every time I get like really close to the pain where we start to feel the heat energy from it, okay, now do something funny. Mm-hmm. Like to remind the kids that we're ultimately here to have an adventure and a good time. And yes, point towards the scary stuff, but don't hang on it because you can't fight city hall kids. So don't even try. <laughs> right. So I feel like that's what the scene is about. But at the same time, if I could pivot back to darkness, Wheelie's a boy. <laughs> Wheelie's a boy stranded on an alien planet of mad men. <laughs> Given Cranix's story, I automatically assume that he crash landed there and he probably wasn't flying the ship if he was a child. So unless he was like kid adventurer, you know, Ricky with his giant robot kind of kid, like a uh, uh, Hogarth from Iron Giant, even then, I don't think that's right. I think he probably was part of some kind of caravan that crash landed there. All of his friends are dead, and he's been surviving by himself. So even though he's coming in as like a cheerful kind of break in the in the darkness, I feel like his presence alone on this planet implies a lot of darkness, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing that's important to point out is that Wheelie has an Autobot symbol on him. Yeah. Unlike Kranix or these other, you know, Sharkticons and everything. Right. They don't have allegiance symbols, but Wheelie clearly has the Autobot logo on him. So, uh-huh. You know, he's clearly clearly an Autobot. Now, where did he come from? Well, back around the time of the movie, they released a storybook called The Story of Wheelie, the Wild <laughs> Boy of Quintesson. Wow. And here's part of the plot, and I'm taking this directly from TF Wiki. Somewhere in space, a spiral-shaped ship spins out of control. Out of fuel, landing gears jammed, the ship crashes on the dangerous planet of Quintesson. Only an Autobot boy, Wheelie, survives. His parents perish in the crash. What? <laughs> this was in a kid's storybook. <laughs> oh my gosh. The Quintessons find Wheelie, decide he must be a spy, and throw him in a dungeon. The Quintessons tie him up and lead him to a pit full of Sharktacons. Oh my gosh. Realizing he's about to become shark food, Wheelie uses the gangplank as a springboard to escape. Oh, see, Cranix, you just should have jumped. You should have jumped, Cranix. You'd be here today. Wow. Wheelie runs out of the Quintesson Fortress and escapes into the jungle, taking up the life of a survivalist. Over time, the Quintessons make many attempts to recapture him, but all fail. That is dark. That's like my side of the mountain, but the kids died, or the kids' parents died. Now, this storybook does not fit in with the movie continuity because in the storybook, he later meets Hot Rod Cup, the Dinobots, and RC, and mm. it's not the exact same meeting as it is okay. in the movie. Okay. But you have to wonder like, how much of it was meant to be quote-unquote <laughs> canon because huh. in this storybook, the spiral ship that we're going to see on this planet was his and his parents, apparently. Oh, I see. Okay. Huh. So, it, you know, it's... This, is that really the backstory for the movie version of this character? We don't know. But it's pretty much the only backstory given. Now, given given that backstory, it makes you wonder if 
it was a miscalculation to make him so cute and rhymy. And he should have been more like a, a wild boy, kind of like that kid from the second Mad Max movie. Right, mm. like, like a little little cave boy kind of ooh unga unga kind of thing, <laughs> and and then that's how he and Grimlock bond, right? <laughs> <laughs> Me wheelie, you know, it's like th- that would have been a very interesting different take on this whole idea, and then then him becoming friends with Daniel afterwards. Whoa, what would that be like? You know, be, get all like epic of Gilgamesh, but in any case, yeah, it's it's you, you feel like he's supposed to be a sweet safe place to go mm. in the story after all this darkness, but yes. After that that backstory, wow, wow, <laughs> I, I'm rethinking Wheelie altogether. So okay, so <laughs> Grimlock and the Dinobots are on their way, presumably to where the heroes are. So, so Wheelie leads the Dinobots to Cup and Hot Rod as we fade to black once more. And as we rise up from black, we hear the now familiar Unicron theme as we see the big planet himself flying through space. That familiar maw opens, and we see Galvatron is here for answers. Finally, some Decepticon time again. (laughs) Unicron! Why did you torture me? You have failed. No, Unicron! Ultra Magnus is dead, and the Matrix destroyed! The Matrix has not been destroyed, and Ultra Magnus lives on the planet of junk. Stalk him. Tear him apart. And destroy the Matrix. And then we see the Decepticon Battlecruiser fly off from Unicron, a new mission at hand. We cut away to that planet of junk where we see the Autobots repairing the shuttle, getting it spaceworthy once more. But again, we see those rust-palleted robots keeping a safe distance away. Their mustachioed leader calls to his troops. But then he looks up to see numerous silhouettes in the sky. Numerous. 31 silhouettes. I'm not even exaggerating. I counted them. Yeah, I love that you counted them. (laughs) Ultra Magnus sees these same silhouettes and announces that the Decepticons have found them, so they try to draw them off away from the shuttle. Cyclonus flies down towards them, again piloted by Galvatron. Galvatron fires, and two blasts envelop the Autobot shuttle and blow it up. So much for leading the Decepticons away from the shuttle. The Autobots scatter and run for their lives, as Springer transforms into helicopter mode. We'd seen him turn into a car before, but now we see that the Autobots have a triple changer of their own. There's definitely no more of that, the Autobots are these and the Decepticons are those thing going on. At first, good guys, cars, bad guys, other things. And then good guys get planes, bad guys get cars, then good guys get cassettes, now good guys get triple changers. Hardly anything is exclusive to either side anymore. Actually, I feel like that's a more, the more I think about it, 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 it leaves it vacant of the erroneous conclusion one could come to of those who look different than us mm. are evil, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's what's inside you. I, I, generally speaking, I think it's, it's a healthier way to approach the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also makes sense as an evolution. Yeah, I mean, it does. What, what purpose would it be that the Autobots 
could only be cars. I mean, why would Prime say, no, you can't be jets, you know? Right, right. Don't, don't darken my door with jets, right? <laughs> you're, you're banished, right? Like, yeah, see, that you already can see, like, the parallels that would be drawn with that kind of, if that storytelling mm-hmm. continued, so. Yep. Yeah. So the Autobots are fleeing, and Blur tells Daniel to transform. But he doesn't know how to make his exosuit transform. And as he's running, he runs into two Decepticons, Scavenger and Shrapnel. So that's why there were so many silhouettes. Galvatron is letting the old Decepticons join the fight. Mm. But Shrapnel's here. Shrapnel was just turned into a sweep earlier. I know he was at the coronation too after that, but I was kind of viewing that as an error. But I guess canonically, the Insecticons' clone beams have allowed for duplicates to have been transformed in their place. And since we were never really told how exactly the clone beams worked, we can't say it doesn't make sense. So we get to keep our Insecticon cake and destroy them too. (laughs) So Daniel is face-to-face against two Decepticons. And thankfully, he figures out transformation and converts to a wield mode, knocking both Decepticons down as he blows past them. And weirdly, those are the only two classic Decepticons seen in this battle. No Blitzwing, no Seekers, no Astrotrain, just Scavenger and Shrapnel. (laughs) Weird. I like the choice of them, because it's like, okay, we need a couple Decepticons who Daniel could possibly defeat. Right, right, yeah. Let's let's get two of the bozos out. Although I would mm-hmm. I would I would not call Shrapnel a bozo given some of the stories we've seen about. But but Scavenger, yes, definitely <laughs> in the bozo category. It would have been much more satisfying if it was Thrusters and Ramjet, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's so strange that we don't even see any other of the old Decepticons here. It's almost like they're like, no, don't don't bother showing the others. We we got new toys to sell. This show more yeah. of the sweeps. Show Cyclonus. Well, that's that's exactly it, and I think you're noticing something that I think becomes an unfortunate trend in future Transformers episodes, is we're really going to put all of our attention on Galvatron, Cyclonus, and Scourge in the mm-hmm. sweeps. All the other Decepticons are going to be treated as incidental soldiers. They might as yep. well be Viacons from here on out. As the Autobots retreat, the sweeps strafe them on the ground. Now, the Decepticons have been here about two minutes tops, and Ultra Magnus is getting fired on by four sweeps, but Ultra Magnus has a solution. Make a break for cover. I'll try to unleash the power of the Matrix. Okay, I know this hasn't been a good day for Ultra Magnus. Prime is dead. The two moons of Cybertron were eaten. Cup and Hot Rod and the Dinobots may be dead too. But two minutes into a battle, and Magnus is equating this to the Autobots' darkest hour. This isn't a game of Super Mario Brothers where you accidentally die by the first enemy and immediately hit the reset button so you can have a do-over. We have no idea what Magnus has been told about the Matrix other than it lighting their darkest hour, but this doesn't feel like the darkest hour to me. Well, and again, I think this is purposely placed where Flint Dilly is showing us how Ultra Magnus is unsuited for the job. He is not mm-hmm. treating the Matrix with the proper reverence in that it, it, it's a tool that just bails you out right mm-hmm. no <laughs> this is this is a holy artifact of our culture ultra magnus you know just it's like it's like he's president it's like we'll use the nukes no sir, sir we don't do that <laughs> you know it, it's just a trade dispute <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, it's showing how unsubtle his his approach and his 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 thinking is. I that that's how I read that now. But I also it does read very comically. It's like, ah, somebody behind me, use the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, it's your birthday. Matrix! <laughs> Sorry, Ultra Magnus just has a lot of anxiety, everybody. <laughs> So the other Autobots retreat into this sort of junk cave, which Magnus shoots at the front of, presumably to keep the Autobots safe from the other Decepticons, but it's hard not to see it as him managing to bury them all alive. <laughs> yeah, it looks like that. <laughs> this guy is really bad at his job. Cyclonus and Galvatron swoop down and transform as Magnus struggles with the Matrix. He can't find the light or darkest hour button. <laughs> Open. Damn it, open! Yes, he just said that, which may not be too shocking to the younger generation, but in 1986, you did not hear Transformers or cartoon characters use the D word unless you were watching Heavy Metal or Fritz the Cat or something. That's another instance of this seeming way more adult than we were used to. But Magnus continues to struggle. Prime, you said the Matrix would light our darkest hour. And here's where I wish we got dialogue from Prime's ghost. Yes, I said our darkest hour, not you squaring <laughs> off against two Decepticons. Sheesh, should have just given it to Perceptor. Right, right. Like, this would be like Optimus using the Matrix on the top of Hoover Dam when he's fighting Megatron, right? Or Sherman <laughs> Dam. I should say Sherman Dam. <laughs> but it's Hoover Dam, everybody. Anyway, but yeah, it's, it's, this is, I feel like this is really underlining the idea of, like, he is a concrete learner. You said... That is going to do a thing. Well, okay, but now, Ultra Magnus, it's your job as a grown-up to imagine what darkest hour could possibly mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm upset. This seems bad. It must be our darkest hour. Is it? Is it really? Or could it get worse? That's something you need to have the imagination for so you can properly adapt. I think I've met somebody in this story who can do that. Maybe he should have the Matrix, right? <laughs> Now, now, again, I'm not faulting Ultra Magnus because he did say I'm not the right person for this job. Mm -hmm. So, but, but yeah, again, as, as a younger person, I thought this was funny and silly. But now as I'm watching it, I'm just like, my gosh, Flint Dilly, did you know what you were doing? <laughs> you put in all the dialogue so that Ultra Magnus is always telling the truth about who he is. He's not, none of this should be a surprise to us. So, and he's even like, he's like really struggling with it. It's not opening. Think of something else. Right, <laughs> and, right. It's one thing to go, huh, I wonder if the Matrix will fix this and try it. But then yeah. if it doesn't work, you don't keep trying it. Right. He's, he's, he's telling us, he's looking at the camera. And Ultra Magnus is saying, I'm not the right person to be doing this, everybody. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, oh, that, that, that's what you call clarity, Right. Mm. This is this is an important thing to me is that people talk about like writing stories for young people and I've I've heard authors say this they said this to my face yeah I could dumb it down I'm like that's not <laughs> it you make it clear and that's what they're doing here they make it clear so that the eleven year olds in the audience receive this and that even though I thought it was funny as a child like oh he's so bad at this but that's the point that's the <laughs> point he's bad at this so. Because he can't improvise and because he can't, he gets on a solution like, well, let's just go to work. That's all. We've all had managers like this, right? Well, this is what works. But no, but I'm telling you, boss, it doesn't work. But that, do it anyway because that's what I think should work. If we do it enough, it'll work, right? No. <laughs> think of something else. You're the boss. And he can't. So this isn't going to go well, is it? <laughs> so Galvatron makes his demands. 
Magnus, I want the Matrix. Never exterminate him! And then we see four sweeps, or presumably Scourge and three sweeps, fly in. So one seems to have replaced the one that the Dinobots destroyed on Earth. I wonder if they intended them to be able to replicate like the Insecticons, since mm. they were made from Insecticons. I believe in Season 3, we're going to see even more than four at a time. So that's an easy way to write that off. I declare that canon now. The sweeps can just have clone beams and make more sweeps. So I, I, I'm going to ask you that when you say I declare that canon now in any future instances of this podcast, you have to put the Mark 7 clang at the end of that. <laughs> so that's an easy way to write that off. I declare that canon now. The sweeps can just have clone beams and make more sweeps. I declare that canon now. The sweeps fire on Magnus as he continues to try to open the Matrix, but try as he might, it will not open. He falls to the ground and explodes as the Matrix goes flying into Galvatron's hand. Unicron, my master. With this, I shall make you my slave. And we see Unicron just shoot energy out of his open maw as we hear a scream of rage emerge from him. Mm. It seems Megatron may have just outsmarted the devil and found a way out of servitude. Oh, Megatron. Yeah, I I wrote that intentionally because I uh -huh. feel like he... I mean, he is Galvatron now, uh -huh. but it seems to me like Megatron is the one who made this deal with the devil. And he yeah. may be Galvatron now, but whenever he can outsmart mm -hmm. the devil that he made this deal with, it's like yeah. going back to Megatron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Megatron standing on the hill saying, did you really think you could fool me by allowing right, right. Ravage to escape? <laughs> like that. It's that Megatron who's, who's mm -hmm. operating right here. Yeah. yeah. Now, originally in the script and in the Marvel Comics comic adaption, the sweeps literally pulled Ultra Magnus apart with sort of laser lassos. But somebody stepped in and declared that was too violent. <laughs> Ironhide shot in the face? Meh, it happens off screen. But pulling a robot apart? Somebody steps in to stop it. I don't think him blowing up on screen into several pieces was that much less sadistic. But anyway, somebody mm. thought so. Now we cut back to the five-faced Imperial Magistrate and the sentencing of Hot Rod and Cup, who are already in place on the plank above the Sharktacon pool. It seems the tentacled bailiff is presenting an idea. Before his Imperial Magistrate delivers a verdict, would you like to beg for your lives? It sometimes helps, but not often. I can't transform. Silence, or you will be held in contempt of this court. I have nothing but contempt for this court. Guilty or innocent? Innocent. And just like the other times, the plank lowers and Cup and Hot Rod fall into the Sharktacon pool. Will they meet the same fate? Well, they definitely take a different tactic. 
Once they hit the water or whatever the liquid is, they swim down towards the bottom and transform. Apparently they're dense enough to sink, which momentarily confuses the Sarcticons until they give chase, set to another piece of hair metal brilliance, Spectre General's hunger. <laughs> Finally reaching the floor of the pool, the pair of Autobots start zooming around, driving in a circle, looping repeatedly until it causes all the water in the pool to spin around in a circle, dizzying all the Sharkticons who can't keep up with the Autobots. The pair drive up the sides of the pool, eventually reaching the top and spinning out of the pool entirely. So, this is another thing I want to draw everybody's attention to. This is bananas, clown time, kid logic nonsense that, oh, we'll just drive around the pool really fast until it makes a whirlpool that we jump out, right? It's so Well, it also makes sense scientifically. Like, I remember as a kid walking around my pool and Uh you do it for a while and literally you're causing the water of the pool to go around. So it's scientifically sound. And when you're like a car that can drive like 200 miles per hour, even underwater somehow, I mean, obviously you're going to create a whirlpool. And if you look at the Sharkticons, they're not very like aerodynamic or anything. They're just like blobs. So I don't think a, that they could swim well. And B, if you give them any sort of like tide and whirlpool, I don't think they're going to do very well. No, I think that's right. I, I, and, and that's why I was saying like kid logic in the sense that this comes from our experience. You just pointed out you mm-hmm. had a childhood experience where when you're watching this, you're like, yep, checks out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but in, in the context of what we've been watching, so we just watched literally less than a minute ago, we watched one of the main characters explode in front of our eyes. And just before he exploded, he was groaning in pain and Galvatron was saying, die. Die, right? <laughs> like he's like he's saying Angus Scrim, boy, die. But so to, to to contrast that, this is something Sunbow does always so well. It's like okay, I know we just did something heavy. Now we do something triumphant and silly and cartoony. We're gonna have these. They're gonna turn to cars, and what are they gonna do? They're gonna drive so fast to make a whirlpool and jump out of the whirlpool, and they're gonna beat the crap out of everybody. <laughs> is that great? <laughs> you know, it's like oh, I feel safe, and this is good. The good guys are doing okay again, right? It's like it's 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 such a great they do such a marvelous seesawing of the storytelling. Just, you could mm-hmm. almost expect it in every Sunbow cartoon. The moment it gets a little bit scary, something sweet, funny, or heartfelt's gonna happen seconds later to make sure that we mm-hmm. feel like we're not watching a grown up movie. We're, right. we're not watching This Is Us, where the whole purpose of it <laughs> is for us to cry. <laughs> you wanna cry for an hour? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'm ten. I don't want to cry for an hour. <laughs> Make you cry for a minute and then bring in something else to make you feel like happy again, right? So it just it just feels like they're doing such a great job of like managing that in the story. So mm-hmm. I'm just trying to point to that pattern that it follows, and I love it. Well, some Sharktacons are able to climb out and give chase, but Howard simply rams into them. But once the Autobots cockily transform, the Sharktacons are able to attack a little bit easier and they swarm the pair. And I love Hot Rod's statement of like we can't hold out forever, but we can give them one humongous repair bill. And he says it almost cheerfully, like he's he's resigned to the fact that they're the odds are impossibly stacked against them. And while he is an optimist at heart, well, at the very least, we're gonna make them sorry that they had to do this to <laughs> us, right? And it's it's it, it, it just shows how brightly he shines in this really, you know, scary and dark story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then, and, and I feel like this is also emphasized by the fact that during the fight, 
there's a part where he punches a shark down in the face and his teeth fall out. <laughs> and then he tries to scratch Hot Rod. Hot Rod jumps out of the way. And when his claws land, they land on another shark And what the heck happens to that other shark over? Hoover? <laughs> it, it, it totally like disassembles. Like his whole face <laughs> falls off. Yeah, you yeah. see like his eyes underneath where the face was and everything. Yeah. Yeah. He, he slices the other Sharktacon's face off. <laughs> it happens on camera. Right. And so you got like this cheerful buoyancy of Hot Rod juxtaposing this. Really, it really, I mean, it almost feels like the tick in a way. Not the same thing. Mm. But you know how the tick is like this bright character in this dark world and they do it mm-hmm. for comedic purposes. But it feels like it, it shares DNA with that for me. Yeah. This is why I love this character so much, Hoover. <laughs> but then, just as the tentacled bailiff orders the Sharktacons to recapture the two Autobots, the giant door to the chamber falls to the ground, crushing the bailiff. It seems the Dinobots have made an entrance. Walking atop the fallen door, Schlag looks down at the bailiff's head poking out from under the door, and he displays some manners. Excuse me! Again, the Dinobots are simply comedic relief now. He and Sludge walk in, followed by an airborne swoop with Grimlock bringing up the rear with Wheelie riding on the back of his neck. Me, Grimlock, want to munch better? The Dinobots make their way towards the mass of Sharktacons, who are visibly frightened at the arrival of these giant beasts. Even Wheelie joins in, shooting a Sharktacon with his slingshot. And so the Sharktacons find themselves completely outclassed by the Dinobots, and soon they don't even try attacking. <laughs> I never thought I'd be so happy to see those big bozos. Me Grimlock, no bozo, me king! Seeing one last chance to steer things in the right direction, the five-faced judge orders the Sharktacons to execute the party crashers. So the Sharktacons meekly transform to a robot mode and sort of unsurely eye one another. Grimlock has a different idea. He stomps his foot and offers a countermeasure. Say execute them! And the confused Sharktacons look at one another for a second and decide, hey, this is a pretty neat idea. <laughs> they head towards their former masters who have fled to the top of this arena, and they're so numerous that they climb up each other's backs to scale the walls. We see hundreds of them scaling the wall as the Autobots enjoy the victory and plot their next move. I think the problems on this planet will be solved very shortly. Yeah, but what about our problems? We need a ship. You get ship if I get trip. Who are you? Him wheeling. Him friend. He'll be mine too if he can find a ship. Give stare over there. And the Autobots look up to see a large tower pointing out of the metal ground. Apparently that is a ship, though it doesn't look like much to cup. But Hot Rod doesn't care as long as it flies. Yeah, and man, that this is like the Florodarius to Florodary designs. And yeah. this, is an, this is another design aesthetic that I have been chasing my entire life. As a matter of fact, I actually did for this project that isn't available. It's not widely available to the public, but it was a comic series I made for a school district called Captain Seriously and the Supermaster Sentinels. And I actually designed a villain's headquarters, and it was basically just a Quintesson ship. Like mm-hmm. with like a few more pieces added onto it. I love this design. I love how counterintuitive it feels. Like mm-hmm. Cup says that's a ship. I'm like, yeah, that, that doesn't even look like a building. It's like a bunch of 
what would you even destroy? I would say it's like sort of take the saucer section of the, the Star Trek Voyager ship, USS Voyager, and mm-hmm. sort of like turn them at different angles towards one another and stack them up in a vertical row. And then at the top of it, put like a green sort of mishmash of tower at the very top of it. So it's a bizarre looking design, but I love it. And I love the way this thing moves when we see it move later on. But also, can we say, like, I love, I also really like the idea of, like, Grimlock having this intuitive primal knowledge. What saves the day is not that the Dinobots overpower the Sharktacons, is that Grimlock has a sort of primal intuition that, well, they don't want to fight us. What if I point them at a different solution? Go fight the little, littler guys. See how much smaller they are than you and how much fewer there are of them than there are of you? Go do that. And then the Sharktacons are like, yeah. <laughs> And it's nice because Grimlock is not a smart character by any means. Mm-hmm. But as he's proven in the past, he can figure out how to solve a problem. Yeah, he's got his own kind of wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. That, 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 I think that's really neat. It's, so it wasn't, it's not overcoming your enemies by defeating them. It's overcoming your enemies by presenting them with a new way, right? A new solution. Maybe you should be right of the show, Sharktacons. Hey, maybe we should be right of the show after all. <laughs> Right. And let's 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 use the this world's internal logic on itself. Right. Okay, Mm -hmm. And now it's fixed. Well, it's at least it looks like it's going to be fixed. Cup says, I I imagine it's going to be solved. Well, maybe. (laughs) But at least we're out of danger. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And and then also the idea of the the way to get home was there the whole time. But we're we don't see it because it's an unfamiliar territory. We need somebody. We need a guide, somebody who's familiar with this territory. This is the whole idea of, like, in the adventure, you got to make friends. You have to make mm-hmm. friends with the weirdo in the woods because the weirdo in the woods may look like a weirdo in the woods, but they're a native to that environment. I'm going to talk more about that a little bit. But, you know, it, it's in, in mythology of, like, you got, like, the, the, the knight who's sent on the errand by dad. You know, it's like, go do this thing, and they don't listen to the weirdo in the woods, and then they die. And then, like, mm-hmm. the dumbling... You know, the Ash Lad goes in into the woods and listens to the weirdo. This is what they were doing with the Yoda thing with Luke, right? If Luke would have listened to Yoda at first, he would have known a lot faster who he was dealing with. And finally, Yoda has to, like, drop the axe. He's like, God, he's so dumb. <laughs> he doesn't get it, you know? So Wheelie's the weirdo in the woods who points and like, yeah, it's right there. <laughs> Just stare over there. <laughs> so... Yeah, Flint Dilly knows his stuff, man. And th- 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 this is all this stuff is why this is like this resonates with us for so long. It's not just because we were rampant consumers who like to buy things, although we celebrate that in this podcast too. <laughs> but it's also because like the writers were doing their level best to write something that resonated and that, that felt like it was meaningful in some way, even if it was a commercial. So <laughs> our heroes are off in this weird shaped ship. Now, where do we go? We cut back to Planet Junk, where we're treated to what used to be Ultra Magnus. He's now lying in pieces on the ground. Not even the new characters are safe from these trigger-happy writers. The other Autobots emerge from their hiding spot and are completely crestfallen to find their leader destroyed. They're full of emotion, aside from the gruff Springer who says nothing. But then Daniel notices something in the distance. Those rust-colored robots who were spying on them before are back, and they're approaching on motorcycles. Time look behind door number two, Monty. It's time to play. End of the line, my Valentine. Joe, Ronnie, do run, run, Ronnie, more. Uh, okay. Clearly, these new characters are crazy. 
<laughs> they speed towards the Autobots, who all transform and get out of Dodge. Monty Python fans may recognize this character is played by Eric Idle. They give chase as Weird Al Yankovic's Dare to be Stupid starts up, and one of these robots lassos Springer in helicopter mode with a chain, but ultimately fails to pull him down, skidding to a stop on the junky ground below and sliding off of his motorcycle. But then something positively novel happens. The motorcycle turns into another robot, as the robot turns into a motorcycle for the other to now ride. There's dozens of these rust-colored transforming robots, and they're all after the Autobots. Springer comments, It's not hard to knock them down. It's getting them to stay down that's the trick. So here's another thing that I think as a child, I was like, they're neat. I, I didn't feel any desire to purchase the one toy that existed of any of these characters mm-hmm. that these, they've met. But, and, and even in the cartoon, I was like, he's fine. But as I get older, I fall more and more madly in love with these characters, especially in the context of this movie. Because mm-hmm. I think that there is a ton of genius behind the design of these characters and how I they agree. function. They have their own way of speaking. They talk in a weird way. Right. So it feels like already it implies like some kind of backlog of culture that we have no contact with. There's no map at the beginning of the book to tell us what we can expect to find in this adventure story. There's implied world building, which is another thing that I really love about Sunbow cartoons. Like, well, we'll throw a few ideas on there. We'll connect them somehow. I don't know. Right. And like Flint Dilly even said when it came to these characters, like, well, it's people who live on a planet of junk. And I thought, what would their culture be? Well, if it's junk people, junk culture. Oh, they talk like television quotes, which is like I feel like is oddly prophetic, given like how thirty years later we're like living in this meme culture where we respond to each <laughs> other with a clip from a television show, right? <laughs> we're now talking TV, <laughs> but 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 either way, it's like they have their own way of speaking. They all turn into the same things. These are transformers who all have the same alt mode. What? Mm-hmm. That feels like it's implying some other kind of cultural thing. You know, it, they're, they're different culturally than w- how we operate on Cybertron. They ride each other, as you pointed out, and they have like this mm-hmm. kind of apocalyptic Mad Max kind of vibe where they're all carrying around axes and, and like these weird like multi axes. Like it's like yeah. four axes on a joint kind of thing. You know, and, and also they're everywhere. You know, like they, they, there's, they keep popping. Out, they pop out of the ground. Mm-hmm. They pop out of the ground. They don't walk out of a house. Good morning, neighbor. They, they rise from the ground almost like zombies, yeah. sort of. So, with with one swoop, Flint Dilly has created a native species of transformers who at this at the same time feel apart and exotic. But not exotic in a way where he's like lifting from like recognizable Earth cultures, right? Like we talked about how in Sea Change we go to this alien planet where these you know there's this native species and they they can go into the well of transformation. They turn into all, whatever they want, but all the architecture feels like vaguely Mayan. It's like okay, let's just take Mayan architecture and put it in outer space and it'll feel alien, right? Mm-hmm. This like you can't point to anything. You can't point. It, it feels like it's like the first modern exotic culture that I can think of that do, that I can't point to any one thing that where they're lifting from. So, the more I think about it, the more I think like these junk transformers are like you use the word novel. They feel absolutely novel in every way I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think like the whole one is a robot, one is a motorcycle, and then they switch. Yeah, is wonderful. And unfortunately, yeah. we will see all these characters again in season three, but 
we only get the surface of them in season three. We don't, we don't get the reason why they come up from the ground. We don't know why they work in pairs and ride each other's vehicle modes. All they concentrate on is, is they watch TV and they talk Mm. TV. Yeah, yeah, that's that the does. one thing that they pretty much glom onto from this movie and take into the series. But yeah, everything about them feels weird and apart from what we've known. Mm-hmm. And weird in a really cool way. Like, I yep. want to know more about this, but yep. we're not going to get any of that in season three. But again, it goes back to this idea of like when you send the characters off to have their tests, they have to be tested in unfamiliar territory. And so you got to mm-hmm. create something that feels exotic and strange and apart. And what a thorough way to do that that what Flint Dilly did here and like oh I when I'm thinking about my book and I'm working on I'm like I gotta do that what he did there mm-hmm. I need to do that I gotta find a way to make something that feels complete and hints at deeper backstory maybe go there maybe not right but in, but it, it makes me wish he did it makes me wish that he would have been like okay we're doing like two episodes about the Junkions right mm-hmm. just like you did with Dino you did it with Dinobot Island you did it with Desertion of the Dinobots you did it with Keita Vector Sigma give me a two-parter just about the junkions. That'd be cool. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that image of that trans- that one junk transformer jumping on the other one and riding away is so rich, and I want mm-hmm. more, and I love it. So, okay, cool mm-hmm. battle coming. Weird Al Yankovic music is playing. I'm here for all of this. <laughs> well, more and more of these rust-colored robots emerge out of the junk on the ground, and they get into melees with the defensive Autobots. Springer and the mustachioed leader of these Transformers get into a sword fight, with the Junkbot managing to shatter Springer's sword. But then who saves the day but Daniel, using the exosuit to wield a long shard of junk, which he brings down firmly on the Junk Warrior's head, knocking him out. Way to pitch in, Daniel. (laughs) And then, there's a moment's peace as the battles stop. And everyone notices a ship in the sky above. It's that curved spindle-shaped ship that Wheelie was pointing the Autobots towards on that other planet. And it seems our two storylines are about to sync up. Mm. But we'll have to see what happens next in Part 4, our exciting conclusion to Transformers the movie. Whew, we're almost done. We're almost done with the movie. My goodness. And what a ride it's proving to be. Because, I mean, honestly, narrative-wise, they don't really have to go to either of these planets. It doesn't Mm. really fit into the Unicron story any. I mean, it beefs up the movie, and heroes should always have things to overcome. But it's somewhat unrelated to the main plot of the movie. So I wouldn't say that they're very necessary, but it's still interesting and a good way to introduce new toys, that's for sure. Well, I mean, see, that's the funny thing. This is why another reason why I get so excited about why I get so excited about this kind of storytelling and and where it happened in history and what it happened for. It's like it's like you're, you're making something that's just meant to sell toys. So one could easily arrive at a sort of crass, cynical approach where it's just like, let's just have the new characters just show up on Cybertron. Hi, I'm Rickgar. You know? Mm-hmm. Why, why, go, why take the time and the intent to create something that feels more 
classic in its... I'm not saying that the Transformers, the movie, is a classic that necessarily 65 years from now, you know, Turner Classic Movies is going to be putting on mm-hmm. and the hologram of Robert <laughs> Osborne is going to come on and say, well, the thing about this movie is... Right. You know, I'm not saying that, although it's possible. You know, we don't know. I can't predict the future. But what I'm saying is that he's... Philadelphia is using, like, classic tropes of storytelling to create something that feels big and important and meaningful to our little 11-year-old brains. And in mm-hmm. those kinds of stories, this is one of the things I love about the, like these, these diversions. You get lost right. in unfamiliar territory. Is This is something that happens in our lives. The things that feel like they are segues or, or diversions from what we're trying to do can often reveal what we absolutely need to do. And this is where psychologists will come and say, that's your subconscious at work. Your subconscious is pushing you like what the fates are. The fates are like sort of like an externalization of what your subconscious is. It's trying to help you get to what you really want. Our egos have a sense of what we want, but it's really hard to articulate, right? And, and often we'll think we want something and realize afterwards we didn't want that at all. That's what all those movies like Teen Wolf are really about, right? So the diversion is a way to be tested and grow as a character, and hopefully find some allies, right? That's what's happening. We met Wheelie, who becomes an ally. Wow, that, that seems like a, a, a weak addition to the team considering the amount of adventure they won on, on Quintessa. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe Wheelie will add up to more. Like, this is something else, like, as a little tiny aside, is, like, as a kid, especially because I was, like, 13 when this movie came out, I didn't care for Wheelie. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is Cousin Oliver all over again. But... <laughs> I anticipate that when we get into season three, I'm probably going to become a big wheelie booster. We'll see. Mm. I'm, 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 I'm anticipating it. May not. Anyway, but I, I feel like that idea of these diversions, you don't have to go to these places. You accidentally get knocked into these places. Life is the thing that happens when you're making other plans, quote John Lennon, right? Mm-hmm. You, we've got a mission. we got a plot that we got to get through. Well, here's the plan. We're going to go, we're going to Cybertron and help our friends who are getting attacked by the monster planet. Well, before you get there, you got to get knocked off of the course and find your real course. Your real course is amassing these friends. Magnus, you have to lose the Matrix because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to somebody else. Who? Well, hopefully we'll find out in the third act, right? These things it's feel necessary. <laughs> it's, it's Wheel of His Prime. Arise, <laughs> Wheel of His Prime. Okie dokie. <laughs> anyway. This is what I'm saying when I say that these writers are doing their level best. I think they're trying to actually write something that's good. And mm-hmm. is it Citizen Kane? Maybe not. But it's better than them just like doing a, a, a simple, straightforward adventure story of like Optimus wants to go to Cybertron for his birthday and Megatron's mm-hmm. fighting him and then some new character show up on Cybertron, right? Yeah. It's so. what, it may not be Citizen Kane, but it's way better than it needs to be. All this needed to be was introduce new characters, get butts in the seats, as they say, into the movie theater. And call it a day. It doesn't ever, ever have to come out on video. I mean, it can. But I think they had pretty low expectations going in. And mm-hmm. yet, we are podcasting about this film. Mm-hmm. 30-something odd years later. Right. People love this film. People watch it and rewatch it. That... I don't think Griffin and Bacall or Sunbow or anybody ever said, okay, we need to make a film that people are going to love 30 years from now. We need it to be so tight and well done that it's going to be looked at as an animation classic. I don't think those words ever emerged from anyone's mouth. 
Right. I think they were more like, okay, we needed to feature these new toys. So we need to show these characters and get kids involved in the characters. So that we'll go out and buy these toys. I think that was pretty much the be all end all of it. And the quote unquote problem is everyone involved overachieved. And we still like these cartoons 30 years later. Mm -hmm. That was not necessary. Hasbro did not need us to still love Transformers 30 years later, but it's worked out great for them. I mean, Lord knows they're releasing characters from this movie right now in 2021. Yeah. Sweeps have come out. Hot Rod has come out. Cup Blur. That Hot Rod figure is, oh, he's so beautiful. (laughs) So talk about overachieving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yes, you know, I'll accept other interpretations where it's like, okay, well, you know, nostalgia, arrested development, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Um, a, a cynical company trying to continually make money off of the same idea over and over again mm-hmm. by playing to our nostalgia. Sure. Just as the movie was a commercial for toys as well as an interesting piece of art, right? It could be more than one thing. Mm-hmm. I remember my first encounter with, with this whole distinction was in high school, and I had just purchased a John Romita Sr. Spider-Man poster, and it was, the, mm. it was from the 1970s. It was the white background with Spider-Man like crawling uh, on the wall and looking up at you. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. And I was on fire. I was so happy. I was like, I cannot believe I got this poster. <laughs> I, I got to go home right now and put it in my room. I'm going to look at it every day and say, Spider-Man, help me make choices because I, I look up to you so much, all that stuff. Right? And I was with a friend who was like one grade up from me. And he's like, oh, uh, don't you feel a little bit ashamed participating in this crass consumerism? I'm like, well, I guess it's <laughs> crass consumerism. But this is also a symbol that like, I find a lot of meaning and in, in, in support in. And... There's a lot of people who worked really hard on all these stories to like make them actually kind of good and, and, and entertaining and resilient to time. So is it crass consumerism or is it that? Well, is it the one or the other? Guess what? It can be both. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Right? Art does not mean that commerce doesn't get involved. Otherwise, I wouldn't say go to baronvonbear.com and subscribe to my email newsletter and buy my book when it comes out in 2023. Right? I got I got to eat too. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not surprised that upon having this careful rewatch with you that I'm finding even more to enjoy and love and celebrate about this movie that's meant so much to me for so long. Mhm. So, yeah. I mean, let's look at one example. You know what else came out in theaters around this time mm. is the thrilling, quote unquote, introduction of the Rock Lords. The GoBots movie. Yeah. Are they still selling toys from the GoBots Rock Lords movie? Yeah. Does anyone talk about the GoBots Rock Lords movie? No. But that's probably okay. It probably did enough back then for Tonka to see a boost in sales. And that's really all they needed. Right. You know, as long as they made back the cost of doing the movie and sold new toys on top of that, it was probably a worthwhile success. But this movie, Overachiever. You know, we're talking about it 30 years later. And we're still wanting toys of these characters. And thankfully, the technology has advanced to where we can get better and better and better looking toys of these characters. Because honestly, the toys that were available in 1986 for these guys, eh. 
they're okay. They get the job done. But if you look at the Rekgar released in 1986 compared to the Rekgar that's coming out soon, oh boy. Yeah, yeah, yep. Night and day. Well, well, and maybe that's something we could do at the end of our coverage of this movie, too, is like maybe when we think about some of the characters we met, is that Floridary did these wonderful, wonderful designs, and then the toy designers, who I believe they moved <laughs> the design department to the United States instead of Takara, if my memory serves mm-hmm, correctly. I think so. And whew, they 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 tried. Yeah. <laughs> they they really tried, but man, cup cups arms, holy cow, Springer's <laughs> arms, oh my goodness, Wheelie's whole body. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Wheelie kind of looks like like he should be working for Doctor Frankenstein. So, <laughs> I, I love the toys. Don't get me wrong, but I love them only because I grew up with them. If I put those in front of like a twelve year old today and said, "Isn't this a cool looking motorcycle toy?" They'd be like. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah. I think that this thing has a lot of merit beyond the fact that we grew up with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope that our coverage of it is 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 helping people find language for it if you didn't previously have it, or you know, just if you want to say high five. So, and here's <laughs> a way you could say high five. If what we're doing on this thing brings you pleasure, makes you think a little bit about the Transformers, Google give us a five-star review wherever you listen to us or even write a review that'd be like the super thing that'd be like if you really want to take the, the matrix and turn it against unicron right if you want to make mm-hmm. unicron your master into unicron your slave write a review just a few sentences about what you like about the podcast that helps more people find it is there anything else people can do to help support this project over well now that we are coming out every two weeks i would really love it that if everyone made some kind of a minor effort in spreading the word about this podcast to other fans, you know, mm-hmm. go on Facebook groups. I do that occasionally and tell people about the podcast, but I think it'll feel more genuine coming from someone who's not involved with it. Like if you really like us, you know, tell other people why you like us. And that goes a lot further than me coming in going, this is my podcast. I want you to listen to it. You know, that, <laughs> That gives no notion of the quality of the actual thing. But if a fan does it, it does. So I'm not saying, hey, guys, do all our work for us. But I would love at this point in the podcast for us to really start amassing a bigger group of fans just to sort of unite those of us who think similarly about all this stuff under one metaphorical digital roof. Because I think there's a lot of different kinds of Transformers fans out there. And they're not all going to be into this sort of discussion on things. Mm. But a lot of them will. So if we could bring more people into the fold, that's great. We've already seen a bit of a boost with the quote-unquote ratings or downloads of these movie episodes. They're already getting more numbers than some of the nearby episodes like bot and so on. And granted the movie is more exciting than something like bot. <laughs> and it's is be more it of a bit, bit, a bit more of a pull. So that's understandable. But I also like to think that right now we're taking the time to sort of swell the audience a bit. And mm-hmm. that way, if people come in and they listen to our movie episodes and they really like what they hear, There's also 65 previous episodes that they can listen to, as well as numerous other non-Transformers episode-related episodes. So 
please do your part that way. You could also go to our TeePublic store, which is tpublic.com slash user slash 4 million years later. We have some fun little designs up there. You can get them as stickers. You know, you don't have to get t-shirts. There's other products available as well, like laptop bags. And, of course, I wouldn't be me if I didn't mention the baby onesies. So, <laughs> so there's that. But I yeah. would love if if everyone found some way to mention us to other Transformers fans, if they really think we're worth listening to. Yep. Agreed. Well... This show drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com and in podcatchers everywhere. There's more social links coming up in the outro. But thank you, Hoover, for this discussion. I look forward to meeting you again to conclude our coverage of the movie. And until then, I have been Jersey Drozd of rss.jdrozd.com and 4millionyearslater.com. And I have been Hoovy, the young orange robot that we meet. <laughs> okay, bye. Next episode, fine. See you next time. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled n-i-c-h-o-l-a-s dash M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com Visit 4millionyearslater.com and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. <laughs>